The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 3, 1-7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, we have a lot of work to do this morning. Um, As you can probably see from our text this morning, um, it's probably a little controversial in our uh, society today. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right into it. I pray that you would buckle up. I pray that you would open up your word, the Bible. You'd follow along with me. Um, I pray pray to share God's word and not my own this morning. So let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the work that you are doing in our church, in our city, that Jesus, you are living and active right now. You are standing at the right hand of God, a human being, flesh and blood in the presence of God, pleading on our behalf that you are ruling over all of creation and you are working all things to your end, which is the renewal of our earth and the heavens. And one day we'll be united again with God and we get to walk with him and talk with him. And we look forward to that. And now as we are exiles and we are on this earth that is uh, tainted by sin and we are tainted by sin and we're struggling with sin and we have broken relationships and um, all kind of brokenness in our lives. We need your word to speak to us. We need your Holy Spirit to move in us. Get us back on your path. Help us think your thoughts. And Father, I pray this morning that you would anoint me, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that what I would say this morning would not be my own opinion, but would be the word of God and that we would be changed by it. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like our reader said, we are in the book of 1 Peter. We're going verse by verse uh, through this entire book. We think that's the best way uh, to study the Bible, and it's the best way to preach on a Sunday morning because it's teaching God's people all of God's Word and not just little bits and pieces that are a lot of times out of context. And over the past few weeks, the Apostle Peter, the author of this book, has been teaching his first century Greco-Roman readers and us, by extension, that our faith in Jesus Christ is going to affect the way that we live inside our society. He's been narrowing his focus each and every week. The first week, three weeks ago, he showed us how our faith is going to cause us to submit to our governments. We are not to be anarchists. Then last week, he showed us how our faith leads us to submit in our workplace. Now, we don't like the word submit or be subject to, but that's the word Peter's using. And now today, Peter is speaking directly to the Christian home. 
He says the way that a husband and wife relate to one another is not simply determined by the culture you grew up in. And he's already told us in weeks past that we've been ransomed from the futile ways of our forefathers. And that includes the cultural norms of our society. So listen, our relationships and our homes and our marriages are not simply to take the shape of the cultural norms of our day. Our marriages are not to be determined by the sitcoms we watch on TV. They don't tell us what normal is or the books that we read or the movies that we watch or what gets issued from Washington. The Christian is shaped, the Christian home is shaped by the word of God. And so Christian marriages should look different and distinct from the rest of our culture. And if they don't, they're not Christian. So today we're going to learn how our relationship with Jesus changes the way we treat our spouse. And it's always important as we read and as we study and as we interpret the Bible, and this is a big piece, it's called, it's a big word, I'll throw it out there, this is why you pay me, okay? Hermeneutic, right? This big her- word called hermeneutic, and it's a way to interpret the Bible. It's the kind of the lenses we put on as we come to the Bible. And now here's a big uh, hermeneutic, a big tool that helps us interpret the Bible, one that you could put in your pocket and, uh, you know, when you're talking at the coffee shop, pull this out, they'll think you're really smart. It's this. Well, let me just set it up. The Bible is inspired by God, but written through man. Okay? God did not take over men like robots, and then they write it, wrote it. God spoke to men, and then he inspired them, right? He kept them from error, but he used them through their personality and through their cultural moment, right? And he's writing when the Bible is all written. Now, here's the big thing right here. Okay, here it is. The Bible is written to a people who are different from us. It's written to a specific people and a specific place in a specific time. And because of that, here it is. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. All right? And so in order to understand what's going on in the Bible, we have to have a decent working knowledge of the people and place, the historical context that the Bible was written into before we just go to the Bible and read a verse and try to apply it to our life. We have to know who was he writing to? Why was he writing? What was the historical context that was going on? Right? Now, I think most of us either have either never read the scripture or we have a working knowledge of that because I see jewelry in here, right? I think everybody's got some makeup on. A lot of people got makeup on. Some of the dudes maybe, this concerns me. Right? So we must understand something here because he clearly said, the Bible clearly says here not to adorn yourself with braided hair and stuff, but we all are. So we must have, either we're in disobedience of the word of God, we might have some understanding of historical context. I'm going to try to teach that to us this morning. So here it is. That means for us to understand our text today, we have to understand Greco-Roman culture, at least a little bit of it, because that's the culture it was written into. First, we've already talked about religious pluralism, dominated Greco-Roman culture. That means everybody was religious. Everything was religious in your home, in your workplace. There was no separation for uh, church and state. Everything was religious, okay? And you could worship any God, just don't claim that your one God is the only true God. Just, we want a nice society, so don't disrupt society by claiming superiority over other religions. Now, that sounds a lot like our culture today, right? 
It is. But here's, here's what was unique about first century Greco-Roman culture. When it comes to the home, when it comes to the relationship between man and woman, man and wife and, and, and male and female, they were very traditional, okay? They had traditional values. They were religious pluralists, and yet they, in the home, they were very traditional. Um, the Greek Greco-Roman philosopher Plutarch, written at the same time as the Bible, or as this uh, section of scripture, this is what he says here, listen. Control, ooh, that's a big word. Control ought to be exercised by the men over the women. But he says this, not as the owner has control over a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through goodwill. But this Greco-Roman philosopher, not a Christian, the same time as this was written, he says this, men should control women, traditional values in a sense. Both Greek philosophy and Roman culture and Roman customs required this kind of order in the household because it was the foundation for order in the state. Okay? And so this is going to be interesting. We need to understand this, right? Basically thinking like this. If women control men, it's going to flip the whole society upside down and it's going to be chaos everywhere. So men control women. That was the simplest way to say it. And so what Peter is doing here is actually quite brilliant. He's basically sowing seeds of reformation and liberation in a way that doesn't completely overthrow the cultural norms of Greco-Roman society. Instead, this is a great example of a subversive form of cultural reformation. Getting inside culture like yeast gets inside of bread and changes it from the inside out. See, when you're a minority in a society like this, you can't just confront the powers that be head on. You will be killed, you'll be burned at the stake, you'll be thrown to the lions, or you'll be silenced and marginalized. So Peter writes to these Greco-Roman women today, in the first section, who have become Christians, and he shows them, this is what it's going to look like now, how to live as a free servant of God. Now that you're, you're Greco-Roman, but you're also Christian, and your Christianity is going to change the way you relate to your husband. And he says that their behavior, if done well, could lead others to submit their lives to Christ, even their possible unbelieving husbands. But before we go verse by verse through all of this, we've already read it. I want to show how progressive this is. Now, what? That might be, you know, might be kind of shocking. See, we read these verses. Let me just go ahead and read it. Likewise, wives, be subject, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that means even if some aren't Christians, some don't get converted, they may be won to Christ without a word by the conduct of their wives. When these unbelieving husbands see your respectful and pure conduct, any comma, do not let your adorning be external, but the, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, in God's sight is very precious. See, when we hear those words, immediately, ladies, I know hairs on the back of your head, right, back of your neck, probably started standing up a little bit. You might've started getting a little twitch, right? It, immediately that sounds kind of old fashioned, 
right? Kind of conservative, maybe too conservative, maybe even oppressive, right? But in reality, over and against Greco-Roman, the Greco-Roman norm for society, what Peter asks women to do here is, is completely different from that. It's actually very progressive. Let me show you five ways that this command for women actually subverts the Greco-Roman norm and is actually very progressive rather than traditional or conservative. One, clearly he says here, He's speaking to a woman who has converted to Jesus with a husband who has not, right? So that's one. This is saying a woman has the right to convert to a different religion than her husband. This was not a Greco-Roman norm. In fact, uh, the same guy, Plutarch, Plutarch said that a woman had to adopt any religion that her husband adopted. She had to fall in line. If she didn't, it would cause chaos in the home. If chaos is in the home, chaos is going to be in society. So a woman had to be whatever religion her husband was, whatever gods her husband worshiped, a woman had to worship those same gods, right? So already this woman gets converted to Christianity, her husband's not, this is upside down of Greco-Roman culture. Secondly, we can see from the text, she can go to church without her husband. This is why modesty is going to be required. And she can develop friends who are not her husband's friends. Now this is... We don't even understand this in our culture today. Again, Greco-Roman society, it was expected of the wife, Plutarch said it, that a wife could have no friends of her own. The husband's friends were the wife's friends, right? Christianity here gets inside of that and says, no, 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 she can go to church. She can have her own friends, okay? Secondly, third, I mean, she is to submit to her husband. Well, that doesn't sound very progressive. No, no, no. What did Plutarch say? Plutarch said, Men dominate women, right? Men control women. Women submit to men. That's not what Peter's saying. He says, wives submit to your own husbands. You don't submit to men in general. You submit to your husband. You are not some second-class citizen. No, in the home, you submit to your own husbands, not all men in general. This is opposed, again, Greco-Roman norms. Fourth, In addressing husbands in verse 7, Peter says specifically that their wives are heirs with you or or co-heirs in some versions. It says co-heirs in Christ or co-heirs in the grace of life. This is showing the the, uh, equality of man and woman, that they're both together co-heirs in Christ. No other religion said this. Women were second-class citizens in in Greco-Roman society. So again, it it subverts Greco-Roman traditional values. And lastly, One of the most shocking verses in all of the Bible, I believe, is in verse 7, that it says, if a husband does not honor his wife, his prayers will not be heard by God. This condemns all forms of abuse and brutishness that was prevalent in Greco-Roman society, silencing women, being verbally abusive, uh, you know, having stuff, having sexual stuff going on on the side, and he condemns it outright. And he says, if you don't honor your wife, God won't hear your prayers. These are, that's five ways that, that Christianity actually subverted Greco-Roman traditional values. And the reason we have a society here where men and women are equal in a lot of ways, not perfectly, but equal in a lot of ways, is because it was 
started right here with Christianity. The seeds of the rebellion were started right here. So this is, don't look at this this morning. You know, so when first century Greco-Roman women heard this, they rejoiced. They were shocked. They shouted, we're equal in the eyes of God. We can go to church. We don't have to obey our husbands in this religious sector. We don't have to worship his gods. We can have other friends. They would have rejoiced. They would have found this incredibly liberating. This was cutting edge and progressive social movement at the time. So it's important for us not to just outright reject Peter's words to us simply because to our modern ears, they sound a little off-putting or old-fashioned. So let's take a look at them a little bit closer. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives. He's already told uh, employees to submit. He's already told uh, citizens to submit. Now he's telling wives to submit. Peter here is addressing Christian wives and their relationship with their husbands. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you at all. We're not saying that every, every female needs to submit to every man or every wife needs to submit to every husband. But Christian, yes. This is, for, this is rules for the Christian household. He says that wives are to submit to their husband even if their husband does not follow Christ. Now that is an incredibly difficult command. And now what does that mean? We know part of what it means to submit by looking at verse 2. When they, the husbands, the unbelieving husbands, see your, quote, respectful and pure conduct. So a Christian's, Christian wife is to be respectful and have pure conduct towards her husband. Peter says this kind of gracious behavior toward a husband, even an unbelieving husband, might win the husband to the Lord, right? That means a Christian's wife's submission is in fact missional. It has a a purpose bigger than her own happiness, but the, the purpose is the glory of God in all the world, that her husband might actually come to faith. And we have an example of this. Um, in the fourth century, St. Augustine wrote a famous book he called his Confessions. And it was basically his testimony of how the Lord redeemed him from a life of promiscuity, he wasn't married. He was married in his heart, maybe, and he was living a life of promiscuity. He was attracted by the academy and high intellectual thoughts. And God arrested him in his heart, and God saved him, and God changed him. And one of the things he writes in that book is how his mom, was his father was an unbelieving father. And more than likely, that's why St. Augustine lived a life of rebellion, because his father is the, was not the spiritual leader in the home, and so he went off to chase other more interesting things. And when and in this book, he talks about his mom um, submitting herself to her husband, an unbelieving husband, in such a way she prayed for him daily, she honored him, she was respectful towards him, and on his deathbed, and he was pretty, he wasn't a great guy, he wasn't, he was probably a normal, uh, a normal, you know, husband of the time, but he wasn't very loving, wasn't very kind, but on his deathbed, uh, St. Augustine writes that she won him to her Lord, that, that more than likely she had this scripture in her mind, meditating on it her whole life as she's serving and submitting to her husband. And it probably never thought it was going to pay off. She probably thought about divorce a hundred times, but Jesus kept her in this marriage. And on his deathbed, she won him to the Lord. That means her submission had eternal consequences. Fascinating. It was a missional opportunity. Let's go on. I don't have time to keep going up. <laughs> 
Verse 3. Here we go. Oh boy. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now this verse is easy to take out of context and misinterpret, right? If you showed up to me and you're looking good, I could pull that one scripture out and go, hey, the Bible says don't braid your hair. The Bible says don't wear jewelry. The Bible says, right, I could do that to you, right? How would you respond to that? This is New Testament too, by the way, because that, so that excuse is out the window. I know your first one. Well, that's Old Testament. First Peter's the New Testament. Well, I didn't know that. Oh, my bad. All right, this is New Testament. So how do you respond to something like this? And obviously you, you like I said earlier, you, you must be doing it because, right, we're pretty well dressed in here. I don't see any gunny sacks, right? I don't see, right? We, we look pretty good in here this morning. Now listen, Peter is not condemning all hairstyles or jewelry. He's not saying even that being fashionable is wrong. He's trying, first off, you, you know this by just progressively going back. Like, okay, so how ugly do I have to be? <laughs> how ugly pleases the Lord, right? Do my clothes need to have holes in them, right? Do I need to wear a bag? Like, how ugly does Jesus like his sheep? Let's ask that, huh? Right? It, you could keep going back until you're naked. <laughs> That's for the honeymoon. Let's just talk about that. <clears throat> All right. Let's, now listen, what he's trying to do here He's trying to make a contrast that is vital for the Christian and specifically for the Christian wife, but also to all of us. And the contrast is this between the outer world of appearances and the inner world of character, the external appearances and the internal quality of a person's heart and spirit. And we know this by just, I mean, you guys probably don't do this, but you can easily look it up online if you want to, and you can just go, what is the Greek word for adornment? And interestingly enough, it's the word cosmos, cosmos, which literally means the world, the everything you see, the external world. And so what Peter reminds us of here is this word for adorning, this cosmos is the world, the orderly arrangement. Peter is saying we all have two worlds that are vying for our attention and devotion. The external us and the internal us. And the external obviously has to deal with how we look, how others perceive us, what we wear, what product we use in our hair, how much makeup we have, how put together we seem. And then in contrast to that, we have an internal world and that's the world of the soul. It's what type of person we are inside. When God looks at us, what God sees, it says man looks like it at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's our character, our spirit. And so Peter is contrasting here the superficial external world against the substantive internal world of the soul. And Peter reminds us our external world is temporary. It's passing away. All of us, no matter how good you look, no matter how many surgeries you had, no matter how much money you put on your, on your outside appearance, you are on your way to becoming dust. All of us are. And our internal world is on its way to eternity. Our spirit will live forever somewhere. 
heaven or hell. And the type of person you're becoming now, is go- that's the type of person you're going to be kind of multiplied times affinity. So as the spirit is changing you and you're becoming more like Christ, when you get into heaven, it's like warp speed into that image of Christ. And the same goes for hell. If you're becoming, if you're pushing away from God and you're running from God, all that hell does is multiply times affinity what's already going on in your internal world. If you're selfish, greedy, sinful, then it just gets multiplied times affinity and that's what hell is going to feel like. And Peter here is saying to the Christian wife, listen, this is one way you submit to Jesus and to your husband. You put more emphasis on your internal adorning, your internal world, the person you are becoming, than you do on your external adorning, how you look in the eyes of others. Now, this is going to get maybe a little convicting, should be. Let me ask all of us, and the ladies in particular this morning, how much time and effort do you spend on your external beauty compared or contrasted to your internal beauty? See, many of us spend at least an hour in front of the mirror each day, and then we say, we confess with our mouth that we don't have time for reading God's word, praying, meditating, being with God's people, How much money do we spend each month on our external world compared to our internal world? Where is the weight of our investments? Where is the, where is the weight going? Is it going towards our inward world or is it going towards our external world? How other people see us, how we're perceived by others, or is it going towards who we are in our soul? And then thankfully, Peter moves on here and he doesn't leave us with this nebulous understanding of what he means when he's speaking of a beautiful inner person. Well, what does that mean, right? He says to us all, and ladies again in particular, listen, our adorning should be the inner person of the heart with the imperishable, that's eternal, beauty, here it is, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I want you to hear this. This is what he's contrasting. Our, I'm going to say it like this, our sexiness, right? The way that we dress to attract the other person. What we're doing is we're trying to make ourselves precious in the sight of another person, right? And God is saying, you're kind of, not that you're completely wasting your time, but what your priority should be is making your internal world precious in the sight of God, beautiful in the sight of God, right? We, we're told this in the Old Testament also, like charm is deceptive and beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, what is a gentle and quiet spirit? Ooh. Every husband's going, please, come on. Please tell me what it is, what I think it is, please. Oh, well, let me tell you what it's not. A gentle and quiet spirit is not a personality style. 
This does not in any way mean that Christian wives should keep their mouths shut and their opinions to themselves. It does not mean in any way that a Christian wife cannot have a choleric or more dominant style of personality. Too many women have been mistreated under those false auspices. I have a book that I read, because I have a dominant personality, if you didn't know. Uh, I have a book that I read every single year. It's one of the few that I repeat every year, and it's by Matthew Henry, and it's called A Discourse on Meekness and Quietness of Spirit. And in this book, he writes on meekness and quietness of spirit. And here's his definition of what a quiet spirit is. Please put it up there. And now listen, this is uh, 18th, 19th century, I think, 19th century. So this is, I'm going to have to interpret some of this, right? Quietness is the evenness, the composure, and the rest of the soul. Rest as in, oh, it's restful, Okay which speaks both the nature and the excellency of the grace of meekness, okay? So let me, let me tell you this. How many of our souls, our mind, will, and emotions, they feel kind of like turbulent seas a lot of times, right? We almost feel out of control in our heart. I'm upset, I don't even know why. I'm anxious, I don't know why. I'm fearful, I don't know why. I want more, and I don't know why. We're constantly like waves of the ocean, always moving. Well, he's saying a quietness of the soul is a peace, it's a rest. The, the stormy seas of our soul get calmed. Okay, keep going. The greatest comfort and happiness of man is sometimes set forth by quietness. So he's saying this is one of the best things that we can desire. Man or woman is a quiet soul. That peace of conscience. That's another peace of quietness of soul. A peace of conscience. My inner desires are calmed and quiet which Jesus Christ has left for a legacy to his disciples. So this is meant for all Christians. Oh, here we go. That present Sabbatism of the soul. What is a Sabbath? It's the seventh day. It's the rest of God. It's a peace of God, which is an earnest of the rest that remains for the people of God is called quietness and assurance forever and is promised as the effect of righteousness. So what Matthew Henry is saying is when the person believes the gospel, it changes them on the inside and there is a peacefulness in their soul. There is a rest or a quietness in their soul. Now, David speaks of this in Psalm 131 verses one through two. If we could put that up there real quick. A song of a sense of David. Look at what David says and he's praying to God. And by the way, this is a liturgy. You didn't know that? The whole book of Psalms is liturgy. That's what it is. So if you don't like liturgy, you don't like the book of Psalms. Psalms is there to teach us how to pray, teach us how to confess. Let's just go on. Uh, David, here's what he says. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Well, what, you know, that's that, that heart that wants to be made much of, right? That heart that's always turbulent. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So he's saying, I know my place in life. I know my station in life. But look, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So let me read for you a commentary on this verse. It says this, because there's, there's two, under, two ways we can understand the, the idea of being weaned. 
If we understand weaned as the meaning of the verb, then the metaphor suggests a child who no longer cries out in hunger for the mother's breast, but who seeks out the mother for her warm embrace and nurturing care, right? So as you're raising a child and you're nursing a mom, you never know if the baby really just wants to hang out with you or if they're just hungry, right? You don't know. Does he really love me or she just needs lunch, right? I don't know. But a weaned child wants to be in the presence of her mother or his mother just to be in the presence. Doesn't want anything from her. So it's a soul that doesn't want or need or crave. The verb, however, might also describe a suckling child who is well-fed and fully satisfied, resting peacefully in the mother's embrace. Both metaphors are a powerful image of one who finds calmness and quiet in the embrace of God. So here's my definition. Quietness of spirit is a spirit or soul, an inward world that is satisfied and satiated in God and therefore is not demanding. Ladies, you have a tendency to define yourself, we, like we all do, men and women both, we, have a, we, have a, we often define ourselves by what we have, our external world, and we also have, we also sometimes look to our husband to provide things that we somehow are lacking, maybe from our childhood, right? Maybe we are insecure. Maybe we don't think we're beautiful enough. Maybe we, we have some kind of things that are lacking. And we have a, that's a, a disquieted soul, a turbulent soul. And we want to latch onto our husbands and make our husbands be Jesus and provide all that for us and tell us that we're special and tell us that we're worth loving. And what Peter is addressing here is your husband can't do that. God can do that. God is the only one who can quiet your soul. I'm going to tell you, right? A new addition on the house won't quiet your soul. An upgraded car won't quiet your soul, right? Another round of Netflix binging won't quiet your soul. Another child won't quiet your soul. But God can and will and does want to quiet and satisfy you in your soul. Only the gospel can empower a woman to do this, and a man, and a man as well, to have a quiet soul. I don't demand anything from my husband because I don't need anything from my husband because Christ has given me everything I need. He's already told me that I'm loved because he went to the cross and died for me. He's already told me that I'm precious and I'm honored because he hung on the cross and died for me. He purchased me out of a million, out of all the people in the world. He purchased me. He wanted me. He chose me. He adopted me. I don't need the external world's approval because my internal world is satisfied and satiated in God. Now, ladies, I realize, and Peter realized, this is, this this is a difficult subject and this can be taken out of context and this can be a reason to fear. That's why in this text, he specifically says, I want you to follow the example of Sarah who did not give way to fear, but trusted in God. And it's interesting now, listen to this. I looked this up this week because I was like, Sarah called Abraham Lord, small L, master. She was in sub submission to him. I said, well, I, I preached all the way through Genesis and if you, if you want more context, you can go back and listen to those sermon series. 
Um, and I thought, when did she, I went back and looked, when did Sarah call Abraham Lord? And she called him Lord in Genesis 18. And this is when, this is this, angels showed up to Abraham. One of them, many scholars believe, was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, because they call him Lord, call him Yahweh. And she's in the tent, and this angel, and I think Jesus, speaks to Abram, and he says this, right? You're going to be a father of many nations, we know that. This time next year, Sarah is going to give birth to a baby, a baby boy. She was 90. Sarah was 90. Abram was 100 at this time. They had no children. And when the angel, when Jesus spoke this to Abram, Sarah's in the tent, and what did she do? She laughed, right? She laughed out loud. And this is what she said. After I am worn out, and my Lord, this is when she used the word, Lord is old. The only time she called him Lord. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, most people completely miss what's going on in this text. And you can go back and listen to our whole sermon series. I spend a whole hour on it, but here's the Cliff Notes version. Abram and Sarah had a rocky marriage. He tried to pass her off several times as his sister to save his own skin, which almost led, it put her in a very, just an extremely precarious situation that could have led to her being sexually mistreated by other men. Abraham did not lead his wife very well spiritually. Most commentators say that Sarah, at this point in the, at Genesis 18, she's not a believer. She was so frustrated that she could not have children with Abraham that she obtained a female ser- servant and gave her to Abram as a second wife to have her child. This led to all kinds of dysfunction, marital dysfunction, familial dysfunction, in their tribe, all kind of dysfunction. And by this time, Genesis 18, in their marriage, Abraham and Sarah were alienated from each other. Their marriage was in ruins. They were still together, but they were not intimate with one another. So when Sarah says, shall I have pleasure? That word pleasure is translated lust in other parts of the Bible. She's literally saying, I'm old, he's old, and we haven't been having sex for a long time. That's what she's saying. She's 90, he's 100. And Jesus shows up, not just to give them their promised child, Isaac, but to restore their relationship with one another. He wanted to change their hearts toward each other, and so he basically says, Go make a baby. This time it's going to work. I'm going to come back next year at this time. You're going to have a baby boy. Now, I hope you see that. There's a lot going on there. Abraham and Sarah need to reconcile. They need to trust God. And they need to have gospel-centered sex, even though both of them might not feel like it. And nine months later, we learn that Sarah conceives of a baby boy at the ripe old age of 90, 91. And what? She was filled with joy. She laughs. They name him laughter, right? She doubted. She trusted God, even though she feared. She did something she didn't want to do, and God blessed her abundantly. This was one way that she submitted herself to God and to her husband. 
she did something that frankly she wasn't in the mood to do and the Lord blessed her greatly for it. Now, married couples, if you need an application point, there it was. Have fun with it. But as I bring this plane to, to, to the runway here and try to close this thing, let me say in qualification that this text, wives submit to your husbands. This text can be and has been used in hurtful and inappropriate ways. And so I'm just going to tell you clearly what it doesn't mean. Peter's call to submission does not mean that if your husband wants to sin, you follow him into it. By no means. It doesn't mean that if your husband wants you to convert to a different religion, you're somehow required to do it. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean if your husband wants to stop attending church that you follow him and you submit to him. It doesn't mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing view. It does not mean that if he abuses you verbally or physically, or he walks out on you, you must remain quietly in the home and live in, some, in that type of cruel environment. Absolutely not. And we know this because he doesn't just say, wives submit to your husbands. He also goes on and speaks to the husband. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, we are called to honor our wives as precious gifts from God. And I got to say it again. Verse seven is in no way patronizing, misogynistic, condescending, pejorative towards women at all. To say, I know it's been used that way. Woman, you're the weaker vessel, right? When Peter says that women are the weaker vessel, he is not speaking of value, worth, intellectual ability. When I say that an iPhone is weaker than a hammer. I'm not saying the iPhone is of lesser value or of lesser importance than said hammer, right? When Peter calls women the weaker vessel, he's speaking to her physical stature, which is still true. There's some things out on the margin, right? There's some things out on the margin, right? But it's pretty much true, right? And he's also speaking to her weaker position in society at large. She's more open to be taken advantage of because of this weakness. Therefore, what he, Peter is saying is that husbands, you have a strength about you and your strength is not there to abuse or to some kind of, kind of control women. Rather, your strength is to be more like a trellis upon which the vine of your wife can grow and flourish in, abundant, in, abu in abundance. You're meant to use your strength to honor your wife so that she can grow and flourish under your leadership. That's what it means to honor your wife, right? You're a hammer, she's an iPhone, whatever. You're a hammer, she's a teacup. This one's worth more, I'm gonna tell you. It's prettier, we like it. You're, you got one job, right? <laughs> now, let me just say, the Bible is perfectly clear and it's God's revealed will to us. Listen, 
there are real gender differences. It's a real thing. It's not something in our head. It's DNA. It's scientific. Not only is it biblical, it's science, right? There are real gender differences. And even though our society is on the crazy train right now and trying to say that there's no such thing as gender, it's all a figment of your imagination. And a four-year-old child can somehow decide, right? I don't trust them with their Halloween candy, but I can trust them deciding on their gender, right? it's, It's crazy. The Bible teaches us, listen, Men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth. They're both made equally in the image of God, right? Together, we are the image of God. But listen, male and female, men and women are not equivalent in any way. Everyone, God, I can't say everyone. We know this, right? We know this. It's not You know, men and women are built differently. They respond to things differently. They have different needs. That's why specifically he speaks to the women and he says, submit to your husband, respect him. That's what men really want to be respected. And what does it say to the women? What are the men? Men, honor your wives. Treat her as precious. Protect her. Love her. Guard her. Right? These are things predominantly that females want, and need. Now, as I close, what are some, how many times can I get away with saying as I close? What are some ways that we're called or that we can honor our wives? Well, primarily one, we are a one woman. We are one woman men. Our wives, our spouse is our Eve. We're Adam. She's our Eve. What does that mean? She is our standard of beauty. She is who we desire. Whatever she's into, that's what I'm into. You like those jeans? Yeah, I'm into the girls who wear them jeans like that. Whatever my wife is into, whatever she's dressed, she's my standard of beauty. What does that mean for us? That means we push away from the foolish notion of being sucked into this pornographic depiction of beauty that somehow women, that this is the, this is the standard of beauty, right? Completely determined by pornography and HBO. And so men, we reject pornography. We reject these shows that show women naked, Why? Because it dishonors our wife. You start comparing in your mind your wife to some other standard of beauty, it's dishonoring to her. Secondly, we lead our family spiritually. We're the ones that say, we go to church on Sunday, we go to missional community on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever it is. We're gonna serve our city this week. Yes, we're going. It's not if, we don't ask if we're going. Yes, we're going. Men, we lead. We take initiative. We lead our children spiritually. We are catechizing our children. We're asking good gospel-centered questions to them. We're asking them about their day. We ask our wives about their day when we get home. It's the way we honor our wives. We make sure that we're getting at least a couple date nights per month. And we're taking her someplace she enjoys. I like to say, take her someplace that you should wear a collared shirt. Dudes. Right? Someplace she enjoys. You sit down and you talk and you put the phone away and you're interested in your wife. 
You honor her. You ask her about her desires, her wishes. What does she want to see with the kids? What does she want to see? Does she have any plans in the house that she wants you to tackle? It's one way you honor her. And then this one, the scariest one of them all. I don't even want to say it because it means I have to do it if I say it. It means we should be asking our wife, what can I do to honor you? Maybe she needs to get away for a few hours and go to Dunn Brothers and take her books and her Bible and journal and pray without the kids. I need need you to take a more active role disciplining the kids. If she's a stay-at-home mom and she disciplines all day and then you get home and just kind of sit back because you had a busy day and you expect her to discipline the kids, she might say, no, I need you to take an active role. You be the chief discipliner of the kids once you get home. Might be help with the dishes. Might be remodel the house. Fix something in the house. I know that broken toilet doesn't bother you. I get it might bother her a little bit. And listen, men, it's a high calling God placed on us to honor the gift that he's given us. The greatest gift other than our salvation is the wife he's given us to cherish and honor and to present to him back one day better than we got her, more sanctified, more like Christ, more precious than we got her. And that's why out of all the people that he's addressed here, citizens, employees, wives, none of those had any consequences tied to them. But the men, the male has a consequence tied to it. And it's this, if you don't honor your wife, he won't even hear your prayer. Boom. Do you really believe that? Our marriages have that kind of weight and purpose, and meaning, because they're showing the world something bigger than just our marriages. They're showing the world how much Christ loves us as his bride. And so husbands, when you're not honoring your wife, what you're basically projecting to the world is a Christ who doesn't love his church. It's a false gospel. So, as I close this morning... I want to draw our attention kind of to the why and to the how. Remember, this is a submit yourself sandwich, right? It's three different times. We just, out of end of chapter two, we learned that it's all empowered by the example of Jesus. He did it. He submitted to the Father in our place for us. He empowers us to submit to one another. He empowers us to submit to our government, to our bosses, to our wife, to our husband. He empowers us to honor and submit. So the only way to do this, listen to me, I am not up here preaching some kind of practical way to make your marriage better. I'll just say, wives, you can't do this. You can't submit to your husband like this, like Jesus submitted to the the father. You know you can't, right? Husbands, you can't honor your wife. And you know what you say to me? I get it all the time. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. That's why primarily Peter is rooting this, not in submitting to your spouse, but in submitting to Christ. That's somebody I do know. And I know he submitted to the father, even though he got ridiculed, even though he got killed and crucified and beaten. And he did that to love you into eternity 
to save you, to sanctify you, and to empower you to go and do likewise, to submit yourself to your spouse. And so ladies, the only way you'll be able to submit to yourself to a sinful husband is if you keep your eyes locked and loaded on Jesus. The perfect leader, the perfect lover, the one who cherished you above all, the one who has never sinned against you and has never done anything to hurt you or to harm you, and he's done everything for you. Second Peter tells us we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. How do we get it? Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And men, don't ex- you can't do this on your own. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap and go honor my wife. Uh huh. Man, we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. How about this? Instead of taking the standard of honoring your wife down to something pathetic that you can actually meet, how about this? How about we keep the standard where the Bible has it and we ask the Holy Spirit to bring us up there, to empower us to actually do it, so the world can look at us and go, wow, that guy honors his wife. That guy's eyes are only for his wife, right? How about we do that? I want to be a church that does that. Ladies, same thing. The Holy Spirit helps us submit. I'm submitting to Jesus through the power of the Spirit as I submit to my husband. The only way we'll be able to honor our wives and submit and respect our husbands over a lifetime is keeping our eyes on Jesus and keeping his love for us and his sacrifice for us in the forefront of our mind. And that's why every week we do the Lord's Supper. Because when you come down here, listen, you're not coming down just to bread and wine or grape juice. You're coming down to Jesus Christ spiritually present right here. This is better than any altar call. This is better than any elder praying for you. This is what you need. You're broken. You're a sinner. You don't honor your wife well. You don't submit to your husband well. And you, don't need, you know what you need? More of Jesus more of his grace. And as you open up your greedy little sinful hands, like we all do, including me, we get the perfect body and blood of Jesus Christ in our hands and in our mouth. We walk out of here being reminded it's not our good works that causes God to love us. God loves us in spite of what we've done, who we are. It's the good news of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, First off, I know there's people in this room who do not know you. They have not been changed or born again. They haven't put their faith in you. And so I ask right now in this moment that anyone who has never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or put their faith in Jesus Christ, they would do so now. In their heart, in their mind, they would say, Father, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin. Would you forgive me and come in to me right now? And Father, those of us in this room who have done that, maybe a million times, we do that every single Sunday, we also confess our great need for you. We're not the perfect spouse. We sin against our wife. We sin against our husband. We need your grace. We need to be reminded how you love us and pursue us in spite of our failures. Would you again forgive us? Would you empower us? And we come to your table this morning with open hands and we ask for your body and your blood to satisfy our soul. Bring it to us. We have a turbulent soul, waves crashing. Speak to the speak to the storm of our soul and calm it for your glory and our good. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.